But first, you've heard buying new military platforms, weapons is expensive. But it's nowhere near as expensive as keeping them up and running for maybe years or decades. It's still the case that sustainment expenses make up about 70% of the average weapon system's life cycle costs. And while DOD leaders have complained about that imbalance for a long time, they've now got a couple of new strategies to address it. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. The department has understood for a very long time that the things that push operation and sustainment costs higher over time often have to do with the decisions that are made at the very beginning of the acquisition life cycle in a system's design phase. But according to Christopher Lohman, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment, the problem is the decisions that would need to be made to drive those costs down are complicated and cross-cutting, and the military services aren't often incentivized to pay a little more up front to find those problems and solve them. So the department's creating a centrally funded rapid sustainment execution reserve that's meant to help do just that. Lohman told a conference hosted by the Professional Services Council that Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks has agreed to fully fund the initiative in the fiscal 2024 and 2025 budgets. And it's meant to provide the upfront investment to procure the solution set, TRL level 7 or above, commercially available, um, must be eight be uh, executed in a single fiscal year. And what I'm after here is how can we seed that effort, get the services past the initial investment, and then scale it within the services. And what I'm going to do for 25 is I'm going to release, I've asked my staff to develop some vignettes that I'll release on SAM.gov. And what I'm looking for is feedback. I'm looking for feedback from industry on what are the solutions, what are the available products, TRLL 7 and above, I'm not interested in developing anything, but what I want are options and ideas on how to address the sustainment challenges with existing technology, and then we'll allow them to compete uh, as we go through. Lohman says he's trying to line the new effort up with DOD's budgeting and planning process to start making procurements to improve the sustainment process in fiscal year 2024. In December, DOD will publish a request for white papers based on those vignettes, assess the responses, and then use them to inform the budgeting process starting next spring. He says it's part of a broader effort to start moving sustainment considerations earlier in the weapon system development process. So ONS costs adapting uh, uh, how the PSMs are thinking about, so the product support managers are thinking about future sustainment. One of those ways is IP and data and options that we'll put into procurement during the competitive phase, right? Does us no good to drop those into a program uh, when you're in a sole source environment. So kind of moving the whole community to the left to start thinking about, hey, what are our options to provide flexibility that we can get in a competitive phase, priced options we can get in a competitive phase that then will allow us uh, with our industry partners uh, to kind of make the appropriate changes as we go forward. Separately, the department is looking to use data in new ways to improve its sustainment plans. Lohman says Hicks also recently approved new ways to measure and manage weapon systems' long-term performance called sustainment health strategies. The idea is to use information in the military services' existing authoritative databases to get better measurements of those systems' availability. Lohman says those metrics will be distinct from the readiness measures the military services currently rely on. So how much availability are our individual web, cap web system capabilities returning and at what cost? We've talked a lot about condition-based maintenance plus over the years. 
The department's done a pretty good job censoring, uh, procuring censored platforms uh, that record a whole host of data elements. And so what we're going to do is build upon that, start focusing on the business intelligence needed at Echelon. So what are those business intelligence tools that I need at the battalion, brigade, division, theater, right, R&D, community, uh, and lab level to understand how these things are performing, where are my cost centers, where are my underperforming assets, and what are my options, right? In some cases, they might be underperforming because our inventory levels are not right, right? Or we pulled because of working capital fund rules and we pulled levers for cash solvency that's having a negative reaction on availability, right? That you won't necessarily see as quickly if you're just looking at readiness, right? Readiness and availability are two different measures. Readiness is a combat commander's measure of combat capability, right? And readiness to perform a mission. Availability is really a logistician's measure of, hey, how many hours am I getting and at what cost? How many days am I getting and at what cost? Lohman says DOD has done some early work to create those new metrics, measures like how much it costs every day to keep a weapon system up and running and ready for service. The good news is those metrics are somewhat easy to design because every new DoD weapon system is designed with those in mind in the first place. The people who make procurement decisions, after all, want to know the answers to questions like mean time between failure and other engineering design criteria. The problem, Lohman says, is that the military largely stops using those measurements once a system has been bought and fielded. So what we're going to do is drive a, a change in the way we think about this. Readiness is an incredibly important measure for a commander. Absolutely. These engineering measures are incredibly important for us to understand in terms of how fleets are performing over time. And when we begin deviating from that performance level, that expected performance level, we can drill down and understand what's occurring, right? Is it training? Is it tools? Is it tech manuals? Is it people? Is it spares level? Is it environment? Is it age, right? All of these things open up for us once we begin understanding that. And so this sustainment health measures is our first step in taking those engineering measures, which, which are part of the sustainment KPP, which are tested in an IOTE, and pulling that information forward into sustainment, and then training the sustainment community to begin to think about sustainment decisions using those measures, that collected data, and those deviations. A little bit different way of thinking about it. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, 
and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring, 
you know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.